Psalm 63 begins a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judea. Psalm of David when he's in the wilderness of Judea. Now, what time of David's life does that indicate to you? He was in the wilderness of Judea. What was that? Okay, fleeing from Saul. And certainly some of that can be described as wilderness in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 1. A couple of writers argued that they felt that it was probably written when he was fleeing from Absalom. Now, every other heading that mentions a historical circumstance in David's life with one, like Psalm 51 is his sin with Bathsheba, but all of them that indicate trouble seem to indicate sometime when he's fleeing from Saul. So this would be a little bit different. But when David fled from Saul, that area too was described as wilderness. In 2 Samuel 15 verse 23, the Bible tells us midway through the verse, the king passed over the brook Kidron and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. 2 Samuel 15 23 verse 28. See, I'm going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So the term wilderness is used of the place that he fled from Absalom as well. And a couple of other references. For example, when David speaks of being in a a dry and weary land, in verse 1, my soul yearns uh, for you, my uh, flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land. That word is used to describe David and his men uh, when they are fleeing from Absalom. Second Samuel 16 verse 2, they provide food for whoever is faint or whoever is weary in the wilderness to drink. That's Second Samuel 16 and verse 2. In 2 Samuel 16 verse 14, the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary and he refreshed himself there. Now, I see some of you writing down those verses. Do I need to go back over any of those? Because I didn't write them down as I intended to when I took this marker in my hand. Um, But does anyone need those verses again? You do need those, Debbie? Okay. The wilderness was 2 Samuel 15, 23 and 28. And the word weary in Psalm 63, 1 is found in 2 Samuel 16, 2 and 2 Samuel 16, 14. So those are a couple of connections. Yes, John. The, the reference he makes in 11, but the king will rejoice. That made me lean more toward him being king than him going to be Prospective king, yes. That was one of the points, I believe it was Kidner, that, that led him to think that that was the time of life as well. So, so yes, it seems like he describes himself as king. Okay. In order to get this on tape, Isaiah, could you come up here and... Um, 
read, read this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you all read for me as much as you can, uh, but just to get this. So Psalm, Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as the fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion of jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear, who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Okay, very good. Very good. There's sometimes... It hits me that if we were to take every one of these verses or every one of these phrases, we could just explore it with a much greater depth than we have ever touched upon. And I'll tell you where that really hit me is reading a couple of comments that were made in this statement, Oh God, he says in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. Now, think about that statement, which I tend to read over quickly to see what it is he is asking of God or to see how he is describing God. But that language, you are my God, is the covenant language of the Bible. God says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And this kind of language is used all through Scripture to describe God's relationship with his people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You see a heavy concentration, particularly in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I think there's a reason for that. Because Jeremiah and Ezekiel preach hard that the people are going to go into captivity because of their sins, but God doesn't give up on them. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, we can give more references than that, but to give you a couple of New Testament references, you find this in... 2 Corinthians 6, 18. I better put it just to be saved, 16 through 18. And then the same idea 
in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4 and verse 7. I think it says there, I will be their God and they will be my sons. But it's basically the same idea. But this is the language of the covenant. As God called Israel to be their God. And they, his people. And David is expressing all of this here. Oh God, you are my God. Now also, think about the implications of this statement. Remember when the Sadducees came to Jesus and were questioning Jesus about the resurrection from the dead. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Seven men had married this woman. None of them have had children by her. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Jesus said, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know God's power. Do you remember how it says in scripture, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And God is not God of the dead, but of the living. And so, even after death, and that's Matthew 22, particularly verses 31 and 32, even after death, we will be able to say, Oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. Now, it is helpful sometimes to know the translations people are using. Um, Deborah, was, are you the one that has the new King James? Not with their songs. Okay, okay. You know, and you know, your people are going to have to be consistent too, okay? <laughs> you can't wait one translation one week and fool me the next. But John, <laughs> yes, the New King James has the trans, instead of referring to the intensity of the search, it refers to the timing of the search. I shall seek you early. While most translations will have something like earnestly. Are there other translations that have the word early there? Gary, what do you have? I have but what translations? Okay, it is the New King James. Okay, but the word, the reason for that translation early is because the word that's used in verse 1 the word that is used for seek, it is not the most typical word for seek. For example, it's not the word that's used in verse 9 when the text talks about those who seek my life to destroy it. This is a word that's only used one more time in the psalm in about 12 times in the Old Testament. It's used in Psalm 73 or 78, verse 34. 78, verse 34. But it is connected to the word dawn as the time of the day. And so that is why some translations read there, I shall seek you early. Now, I, I wonder if this has influenced some of our songs holy 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 
early in the morning, I rise to sing to you. I believe are the words. But early in the morning. Now, that may be a legitimate translation. Many argue, though, that instead of the timing of the search, the emphasis is more on the intensity of the search. That I will seek you earnestly. I will seek you earnestly. And if context gives anything away, it would lean toward that translation, earnest, because he says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I can remember uh, summer days playing in our baseball field and our dirt baseball field and the dirt seems to cake across your lips and, the, and it's hot and it's dry and afterwards all you can think about is getting a drink um, and when, when our desire for you lost it I lost I lost it Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, my voice is worse than I thought it was, so I need all the help I can get. So I appreciate you helping me with that, John. But you know what it's like to long for water. And he says that he longs for God in such a fashion. Do we seek God? that passionately do we pursue him with that intensity that we long for him like we long for water blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled in Matthew 5 and verse 6 O God you are my God I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. Now, I want to tell you. This yearning for God needs to be across our life. It, it is across our life. But particularly, this yearning for God is tied here to public worship. The sanctuary, to reference to God's house, God's temple. I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. He he longs for God. He desires God. And as he is intensely desiring God, he longs to be in worship and to see the power and the glory of God displayed. Thank you. Christy, could you go back there and get me a water, please? Um, any comments right there on verses 1 through David? Talking about you know, thirsting, and maybe you think, I doubt that any of this 
have been truly thirsty where to the point that if we didn't get water soon we would die yeah i mean we need certainly need water to live mm -hmm. but i doubt that any of us have really been that thirsty yeah. and so so it's almost like that's lost on us yeah yes I, it's more intense than what our greatest yes we know enough about it to understand the illustration. We don't know it, the level at someone who goes through the wilderness. A word wilderness can also be translated, it's in the heading, could also be translated desert. If you're in a desert, you are looking for every source of water in order to survive. Every source of water and you are conscious, if you're good at it, you know that things like cactus can be a source of water to help someone who is weary and on the verge of death by um, thirst uh, for, for not having any water. And, uh, but, but yes, I, I think you're right, David. We haven't experienced it with that kind of life-threatening intensity but we have experienced it enough that we can appreciate the illustration to some degree, to some degree, not in all its depth. Debbie? I was thinking, um, but some of us have been in circumstances where we've been spiritually dry wildernesses Yes, yes. Yes, it often leads to a more intense search. And people who have those blessings may tend to take them for granted. And uh, so, yes, yes. And, um, but he spoke of God's power in verse 2. And he speaks of God's glory in verse 2 as well. Um at the end of Psalm 62, David spoke of God's power and God's loving kindness. In 62 verses 11 and 12. Now, here in 63, verse 2 and 3, he mentions God's power and God's loving kindness. And your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. God's loving kindness. And there's, there's no more important word in the study of the Psalms than that word. It's found about 247 times in the Old Testament. Slightly over half of those are in the book of Psalms. God's loving kindness, 128 of those 247. And, and it describes God's mercy, God's grace. God's long-suffering, all of these rolled up into one are described in this term. Because your loving kindness is better to me than life. Now that uh, is quite, quite a statement. It's better than life. Um, life at its highest 
does not equal God's loving kindness. And this leads him to praise God. And he says in verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live and I will lift up my hands in your name. I'll lift up my hands. And you think about that phrase in the Old Testament. What story do you think about? Yeah, they held up Moses' hand. Moses held up his hands. And when he couldn't hold his hands up anymore, Aaron and Hur held up his hands. But before in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 9, 29, Moses was said to lift up his hands in prayer. And so often in praise and prayer, people lifted up their hands. You do see references that all through the Old Testament. And you do see a couple in the New. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, uh, men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. Um, Some may question that practice because others may do it that we don't agree with but you see it in scripture when you can put your finger on a scripture it's always hard to disagree with something and um, so I'll bless you as long as I live I will lift up my hands in your name and he says in verse 5 my soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praise with joyful lips. Now, for morrow and fatness, some of your translations have different things in verse 5. Well, what, what do you, some of your translations have? Fat and rich food, ESV. What else? What did you think you said that there? Morrow and fatness. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, they, some of the translations struggle, but everything about this emphasizes that it is the richest of foods. And my soul is satisfied as with morrow and fatness to praise God, to bless God, to seek God, and to see his power and to see his glory and to see his loving kindness that is a greater satisfaction than to be filled with the greatest of foods okay it's a good way to phrase it fully satisfied with the richest of foods a case that we're going to refer to later in John 4, remember in John 4, as Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, the Bible had told us that he's weary and they went to get him food to eat. And remember, when they come back, even though they've gotten him food, he's weary, he's tired, it, it may say there that he's hungry. I know it says he's tired in verse 6. But uh, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. To do God's will provides a satisfaction that physical food cannot. 
see how much commercials just emphasize food. Think about how much money that takes out of our um, accounts. And this is a satisfaction that's greater than that. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. In verse 7, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Verse 6, he mentions my bed and he mentions the night watches. You remember that Gideon's account talks about uh, the middle watch of the night. I believe it is when Gideon's being attacked. They divided the night into three watches. But verse 6 says a lot about bed and night and what point in life is often uh, the time of greatest sadness. It can often be night time. In the book of Psalms, listen to this in Psalm 6 verse 6, I am weary with my sign. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. In night our fears may be intensified. In night, our sorrows may be stronger. And when the writer feels that, he said, I remember you. I remember you on my bed. And I meditate on you. Now this word meditate is a word used in one too. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. And he is meditating on God. He meditates on you in the night watches. He remembers God on his bed. He meditates on his night watches. When you are not feeling well or you cannot sleep just for some unexplained reason, where does our mind go to meditate? May we seek God so earnestly, so intensely that he is the subject of our contemplation. That it's his words that nourish and strengthen us. And he says in verse 7, You have been my help. You're my help. And in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. And we've seen that image quite frequently in the Psalms. The shadow of your wings. Look at Psalm 57. Psalm 57 and verse 1. I'll let one of you read it when you get there. Psalm 57 and verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in thee, and in the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge until destruction comes. Okay. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. And we've seen that idea quite frequently. And here, God, you've been my help. You've been my helper. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for you. And my soul clings. My soul clings to you. And your right hand upholds me. One thing I like about verse 8, 
verse 8 emphasizes our responsibilities to God and God's blessing upon us. It emphasizes both. It is a very balanced in that respect. My okay, thank you. Thank you. See, you people are doing well. You need to read my mind. I'm looking for. But this word clings is used frequently. We encounter this word frequently in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, particularly. My soul clings to you. It's in Deuteronomy 4 4. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 4. Some other instances of it were 10 20, 11 and 30-20. All those passages called upon Israel to cling to God. To cling to God. Now, um, it is the same word that is used of marriage in Genesis 2.24. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's translated. But it's the same Hebrew word. And it is also the Hebrew word used when Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi, in Ruth 1 and verse 14. So, it describes a husband clinging to his wife or a woman clinging to her mother-in-law going to a foreign land. And this describes our relationship to God. My soul clings to you and your right hand. And God's right hand is often described as his hand of power. He said, my right hand, I, in Psalm uh, 35, uh, there was a reference to this as well. Psalm 35, um, a reference to God's right hand upholding him. Well, I think there is, but I'm not finding it. Uh, but... Your right hand upholds me, supports me. Now, I was looking for some uses of that word uphold that would help illustrate. And we've already referred to the incident that I think illustrates that tonight. This is the same word for uphold that is used in Exodus 17. Verse 12. When Moses lifted up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Israel was defeated. When Moses doesn't have any more strength to hold up his hands, Aaron stands on one side and Hur stands on the other. And 
holds up his hand. And just like Aaron and her held up Moses' hand, God's right hand upholds us and sustains us. We cling to God. We cling to Him. We cling to Him with the intensity with which we cling to our wives and those close to us. And even greater than that. And God upholds us and lifts us up and strengthens us. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. John. So that uphold can also mean to, to grasp or, or hold on to, right? So you kind of have the image, we hold on to God, he's holding on to us. Yes, yes. And, and God, as you know, has a better grip. And sometimes when our strength to hold on is gone, he holds us up and it lifts us up. But it has the idea of, can we translate it places support, you know, with other things like that. But it is a powerful image to think about God holding us up. Gary? I was just thinking along the same lines when we were talking about David wanting to be underneath the shoulder of his wings. There was God's desire also expressed through Jesus when he came into the city. How yeah. I want to, yeah. to shelter you guys and bring you under my wings. Yeah. Yeah. I know Gary hadn't been here long. He doesn't know that's David's verse. David always gets to apply that to Jesus. And, uh, but yes, that's very good. Matthew 23, 37. Uh, God longs for that. As much as the most diligence, uh, as, or, or with greater intensity, than we long for that. It is funny sometimes, looking at commentary, and seeing them try as they begin to characterize each psalm and to say what and, and, and you can find, and I read about 13 or 14 commentaries, and, and I probably got 13 or 14 different descriptions of what kind of psalm this was. Uh, they each come out with a different idea. You know, John mentioned the king earlier in verse 11. Some even claimed it's a royal psalm. Because it mentions the king once. And some call it a, sign, a psalm of lament. A lot of them called it that. Lament or grief. But he doesn't mention enemies till verse 9. You know, it's not your typical psalm of lament. If it is to be characterized that way. And it says, those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. The intensity with which he's seeking God makes his enemy seem rather small on the horizon. Those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be prey for foxes. They will be slain. They will um, be delivered over the power of the sword and they will be prey for foxes what was the idea of being prey for a fox and some of your translations may have a jackal there and, and I even read some commentaries that make an argument as to which is a better translation 
a fox or a jackal. Um, now, you may be a, a, zoo, a zoologist and you may be able to make that distinction better than I am, but I'm not very good at making that distinction. But what's the point? What's the overall point? Whether it be fox or jackal or what? Well, you connect it to the first part of that verse. It, you know, they're being made killed mm. by the sword and left in the field to be eaten by the wild animals. Exactly. To die unburied was a great insult. Not only in Israel, but in the ancient Near East. David and Goliath, when they come out, both threaten to kill the other. And state they're going to win the battle. And I think both of them, I know Goliath does, say that you're going to be left unburied. You're not going to receive a proper burial. That was just considered an outrage in that day and time that you didn't eat, weren't shown enough dignity to receive a proper burial. And that's what's going to happen to those who oppose the psalmist. Those who seek my life to destroy it, they'll go into the depths of the earth. They'll be delivered to the power of the sword. And they will be a prey for foxes. And who can you think of? whose body was eaten by dogs. Jezebel, 2 Kings 9, verse 30. But verse 11 talks about that the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For in the mouths of those who speak lies... The mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. So the king, the king is going to rejoice at God's victory. The king will rejoice. All who swear by God will rejoice. They will all rejoice. They will all glory. To swear by God is to show your devotion to him. Your loyalty to him. That he is your God. It is interesting when Elijah is sent to that widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17 that the statements made in 1 Kings 17 uh, verse 12 the widow says as the Lord your God lives 1 Kings 17 verse 12 this foreign lady is swearing by God showing that is where her allegiance belongs so not only will David rejoice but all who swear by him will rejoice he says the mouth of all who speak lies will be stopped David uses his mouth and his lips in verse 3 to praise God the wicked use their mouth in verse 11 to speak lies. David's, uh, the enemy's mouth will be stopped. Remember we talked about a word for dawn earlier in verse 1. Now, I want to express this well. And so I beg you to listen closely. 
The word for dawn or earnestly in verse 1, translated earnestly in some verses, still still the same Hebrew word. It is not the same word translated stopped in verse 11, but they are pronounced the same way, basically. You would have to be a trained listener to Hebrew to tell any difference between those two words because it's basically the same sound. But isn't it interesting? Some writers brought out the point where in verse 1 it's used to describe David's earnest and diligent search for God. While in verse 11 it's used to describe the closed mouths of those who speak against him and speak against God. In Romans 3.19, the Bible talks about every mouth being stopped uh, and all may be accountable to God. Maybe they have verse 11 in mind. Uh, Those who speak lies, their mouths will be stopped. What, what other points about this text did you all notice or have questions about? Anything, De- Debbie? I always have a problem with that word, bless, because I always think of that as something that God blesses us He blesses me. Yes. So And the word blessed does often describe what God does to us and how God gives us good things. We see in the book of Deuteronomy the blessings and the curses. Uh, God is gracious and God blesses us. And we respond, bless him. It is pretty much a parallel with the term praise him. You notice um, in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, so I will bless you. And then verse 4, I will lift up my hand. I think all of those point in the same direction. We bless God not in the same sense he blesses us. We are dependent upon every blessing that he gives us. But we return and thank him and praise him. And that uh, is, is blessing him. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Yes. And, and I, I've heard it explained that we bless God when we speak well. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, And and I think the New Testament word does, I think the New Testament word is the basis of our word eulogize. And and basically eulogize means to speak well of uh, of another. So, okay. Um, I got to share this. Okay, go ahead. uh, I remember verse 6, I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. 
<laughs> yeah, that is good. That is good. Mind over mattress, yes. Which which is not it's not sometimes when you hit the mattress, not much mind is working, so that's uh that's uh, that's pretty good. Um what are some ways and there are there are multitudes here that you see Jesus fulfilling the words of the psalm. Gary has already mentioned one uh, about, you know, when it talks about the wings in 63, 7, I shelter underneath your wings. And how Jesus applied that image to yourself, to himself, in Matthew 23, 37, 39, and in Luke 13, 34. Now, there, Jesus is pictured as the God of the Psalms. And Jesus is the picture of God in the Psalms. And Jesus is also the picture of the seeker of God in the Psalms. Let me illustrate by something I said a moment ago. It's John 4. John 4. Jesus. The disciples are away. The disciples will later be surprised he spoke to a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman will also be surprised that Jesus speaks to her. And Jesus says, give me a drink. And she said, you know... Um, how is it that you being a Jew speak to me, a Samaritan? He said, if you would known who this was, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And she said, you're not, you know, the well's deep, and you don't have anything to draw with. And um, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? And Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, there will be a him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus is the water that satisfies our weary soul. He's pictured that way in verses 7 through 14. Look at John 6, 35. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the water who satisfies our weary soul. But look at 7, 
37 to 39. I'm going to ask one of one of you all to read it. 7, 37 to 39. Just go ahead. Anyone? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the water that satisfies our weary soul. He is the God that we search for and seek for. And yet, at the same time, Jesus is seeker as well. Now, this is the amazing thing. Jesus is one who is seeking God. Who is seeking God earnestly. Because after the disciples come back and they urge him in verse 31, this is John 4, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said, I have food to eat you do not know about. And he says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the point that we're trying to stress is here Jesus is one who finds his greatest satisfaction in God. He is both the God who satisfies our thirst and he is the one that is seeking God earnestly. By the way, apparently the woman was also, had also started to taste of this living water to some degree. The statements made in verse 28 of John 4, she left her water pot and went into the city. She leaves her water behind because she has gotten a greater water that satisfies. And Jesus, in, in verse 35, or excuse me, verse 5, portrays this more as food. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will not hunger. He can satisfy our hunger and our thirst. Now, this point, let me mention this. This may be a stretch. In verse 1, the word that was translated early or earnestly, that word... The word that's used in the Septuagint is only used once in the New Testament. This is a word for early or earnestly. In verse 1, early was the New King James. I think most every other version had something like earnestly. This word's only used once. The word that you hear in the Greek Old Testament is only used once in the New Testament. And that is in Luke 21, verse 38. 
And it shows people rising early because Jesus was going to the temple every morning to teach. And the people were rising early to come hear him teach. Does this indicate that those people are spiritually hungry, looking for the bread of life? And even though Jesus will be rejected this week and be crucified, Maybe it was some of these who were among those 3,000 baptized on the day of Pentecost. Or the 5,000 men by Acts 4 verse 4. You'll have to look at that and to think about it. I think it probably ties in somehow. I don't know if I'm expressing it the best way. But in Psalm 63, David longed to see God's power. And God's glory. Because God's loving kindness is better than life. The word for power that is used in the Greek translation is the same word used in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 1.18 and 1.24. In 1.18, for the word of the cross is to them who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. And Paul said, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are saved, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you want to see God's power and God's glory, look at the cross. Look at the cross. And that word glory, but that word glory is especially used in 63 verse 2. The word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used repeatedly in John to talk about the glory of Jesus which is particularly tied to the cross. If you want to see the power and glory of Jesus, if you want to see the power, the glory of God, or the loving kindness of Jesus, the word loving kindness is translated in the Greek, the Septuagint, Elios, or mercy. And it is particularly tied to cross in Ephesians 2 verse 4. The point in the cross of Christ is the ultimate display of God's power, of God's glory, and God's loving kindness. Gerald Wilson in the NIV application commentary also made this point. Jesus did not want to die on the cross. He asked if the moment would pass him 
But he went to the cross because he was showing that God's love was stronger than life. God's love was stronger than life. Your loving kindness is better than life. And Jesus shows that in a dramatic way. Now, one writer led me down this way, I think. The statement in verse 9, they seek my life to destroy it. We have encountered that in the Psalms. Um, if you want any of this, get it down. If you want to take a picture of it, do. I may, I may use it all this board for this last point. If anybody wants to, Christy, why don't you get that down where, in case I forget some of it. Time Yes, yes, that's right. It's, and that's basically the, um, yeah, it, it sounds much like the word dynamite. Yeah, you know, it, it, they're using that on Wednesday and Sunday, Wednesday nights. Is that your class? Okay. So I guess I can't take it off. Teacher tells me to. Yeah. I was afraid this poor would get held hostage. But I'm willing to pay any ransom to get it released. Um, but. One writer made this point. First of all, this phrase, they seek my life. That was said of Moses. That was said over and over of David. I know that some of this may be a little, you may think it's a little overkill to give all these passages where they are seeking David's life. They're seeking Moses' life, they sought David's life, they sought Elijah's life. And they seek my life, he said, to take it away. They killed your prophet. First Kings 19, 10 and 14. And Jeremiah, they saw his life. Okay. You know something that all those have in common? And we've also seen that expression at least three times in the psalm. All those have in common that those attempt to seek their life failed. They were all given life. They said that. But Jesus, it says in Mark 11, 18, that they saw his life. 
And that plot will succeed temporarily. <laughs> temporarily. Until Jesus is raised from the dead. But in a certain sense, the fact that all of these characters survive these mere death experiences is a foreshadowing of his resurrection. God always delivered his servant from death. It foreshadows the fact that Jesus will be delivered and through him he is our God, my God, forever. There are other points of connection, but if we get those down, I think we'll be doing well. Any, any other thoughts? Okay. Um, right, would you want to lead us in a closing prayer? Our Father, we are truly humbled before you tonight. So thankful to you that you are our God and that we may call you our Father. Father, we are thankful to you for your word and for these the songs that we've been able to look at to better understand you and what your will for us is. Father, we are thankful to you for Jesus and for your willingness to sacrifice him that we might be reconciled to you as a result of his, his sacrifice. Father, help each of us to seriously consider the things we've discussed from your word and the importance of seeking you and, and seeking you earnestly. Help us to have that kind of attitude in our lives so that we might be what you would have us to be and that we might be better equipped, better able to show others the way to you. Father, we ask that you would be with each of us as we depart, that you might keep us safe. Help us to join again to, to worship and to study you from your word again at the next time. We ask you, Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, we we also have a. Um